made up of 108 verses. 54 of them are imperatives. An imperative is a command. All right, how we doing, Porchy? Huh? Good to see ya. Welcome to our friends spread out. Last night, all of us were running to Indianapolis and trying to check out the final four. And tonight, Indianapolis is jumping in with us with one of our porch locations. So hello to you. We got some new friends up there in Des Moines and Cedar Rapids. So it is awesome to have you with us. But man, I'm glad to be here in the room with each of you as we dive into the book of James. We're calling this series Full Truth from a Half-Brother because if you're not familiar with the fact that uh, Jesus had siblings, let me introduce you to that fact. And uh, one of his brothers was a a man named James. James did not believe in Jesus for a good long while. He um, didn't like his uh, more excellent older brother, who uh, you can imagine following him, right? Some of you guys are not the first one, I'm the middle child in my family. And uh, when you got an older brother who does well in grades or does well in sports, it's always like, why aren't you more like your brother? Can you imagine being James? Why aren't you more? Because I'm not divine. Because I wasn't born of a virgin, right? That's why. So James, anyway, was a guy who did not know um, early on in his life who Jesus was, even mocked him um, in Jesus' uh, beginning of his ministry and uh, told him basically that he ought to um, go figure out who he really is and quit having these delusions. And a little bit later, he locked in and figured out who Jesus really was. And then he wrote a book because he wants you to know who Jesus really is. Now watch this. One of the ways that most of us are going to find out who Jesus is, is we're going to run into people who really know Jesus. So if you're here and um, you're part of the the larger community of Dallas or Cedar Rapids or Indianapolis or Scottsdale or wherever you might be that doesn't really know who Jesus is, this is a great series to drop into. And here's why. Because most people who have a problem with God have never met a real God follower. In fact, sometimes when I talk to people who um, have a problem with the God idea, they'll tell me, oh, I don't believe in God. I, I like to say to them, well, why don't you tell me what kind of God you don't believe in? Because there's a good chance I don't believe in him either. Most people have a view of God that he's here to rip you off, man. He's here to um, suppress you. He's here to have you deny all your desires. And let me just tell you this. God does not want to deny you your desires. He wants to inform your desires with wisdom. Now mark that. Jesus does say, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Because sometimes when you don't do what you want to do, it feels like you're dying. You're denying who you really are. And I want to let you know something. Who you really are, are people created in the image of God that were designed to have an intimate relationship with your creator. Who you have become, because you are descendants of sinners, is people given over to sin. Every single one of us is part of the human race. 
And God's word tells us that the human race is a fallen people. We have moved away from the idea that God is good, or not the idea, the reality and the truth that God is good, that his word is true, and disobeying him is a big deal. We, we deny those things. It's in our nature to not believe in the goodness of God. And what God wants to do is reveal to you the true character of his person. And so, as I love to share with my friends, what God has done is he has left us a story of his interactions with real people in history. The Bible is unique in that it is not just a collection of philosophies. The Bible is not nonsensical like other holy books that are out there. What do I mean by that? If you can't test something, if you can't verify something, you cannot prove its veracity. And so what makes the Bible unique from the Quran, what makes the Bible unique from the Hindu holy books and um, from Buddhist writings and other things is that even the Book of Mormon is that you can test it. It is anchored in the context of the human story. It is God's working with humankind through history. And so you can go and look, and this is why. Do you know this? There has never been a single archeological discovery in the history of archeology span that has contradicted scripture. And in fact, they used to mock people who believe in the Bible because we believed in a, uh, a King David because there was no e uh, record in history that there was ever a David. And then lo and behold, just a few decades ago, they're digging around Jerusalem on what is called locally the city of David. And they find inscriptions with David on it. People mocked the idea that there was a, a ruler called Pontius Pilate until they were digging in Caesarea by the sea. And they came across a stone that had the inscription of Pontius Pilate on it. I could go on and on and on. There's been many uh, individuals that are archaeologists who don't necessarily believe in the full narrative of Scripture, but who say, I will not dig in the Middle East without the Bible, because it is a map for where things should be. What God did is he anchored his story in the context of history. And this book, this Bible, is not a, a rule book. It's not a, a story of what kind of morality you must live by or you're not going to be loved by God. It is the story of God rescuing people who don't live as God intended them to live. And because they separate themselves from God, they, they live in the due course of their error. They experience the pain and the problem of living according to the futility of man. And so God's a good father. And so he runs to us, he seeks us, and he wants to pull us out of our all-knowing wisdom of our 20s and show us from an infinite compassionate personage, his kind intention towards us. Now watch, remember what I said? Most people, when they say, I don't believe in God, I love to say to them, well, what kind of God don't you believe in? Well, I don't believe in a God that's gonna send people to hell. Okay, well, me neither. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People say, I want nothing to you to do with you, God. And so God lets them one day be forever in a place that will never remind him of him again. Well, I don't believe in a God that would allow evil to, 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 um, to be on earth. Well, good news. The Bible says that God doesn't like evil either. But the reason he hasn't dealt with evil completely yet is because your definition of evil is not God's definition of evil. 
And so if God's going to deal with evil, it's not that girl that broke up with you that you wish hadn't. It's not that guy that won't like you that you wish he would. It's not that parent that abandoned you. Evil, in God's eyes, is anything less than him. And when we live in relationship with him and enjoy him and consider him good in every way, then, then all is right in the world. But none of us do that. Adam and Eve said they didn't want to do that. We don't want to believe in the goodness of God. We're going to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we'll decide what good is. And here's the deal. When people would say to me something like, well, Todd, I don't really believe in a God that, that, would, uh, that would allow evil on earth. Well, I go, here's the deal. God didn't want evil on earth, which is why he told us to live in relationship with him. But when we choose to not walk with him, we get less than good, less than God, which is evil. Now watch this. When most people say, well, God should get rid of evil, let me go back to where I was talking a second ago. What I say to them, well, what level of evil are you willing to get rid with? Because why don't we go ahead and start with you? And people go, whoa, 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 there's a lot of things that are more evil than me. I go, well, I agree with that, usually, when I'm talking to folks. <laughs> but what I've got to say to them is, we don't get to decide what is good and what is evil. Good and evil is a fixed reality. And God doesn't want to get rid of evil because he loves you, or doesn't want to get rid of evil yet because he loves you. In fact, the Bible says this. God is not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wishing that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. And he says in another place, this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ as Lord. Now James came to know who Jesus is. And so he wrote a book to people who believed who Jesus was to tell them how to live. And this is why he wanted to remind them how we live because if we say we know God, we should be increasingly moving towards God because God is good. And if God is somebody that we know and we know he's good, we're going to run more and more towards him. We're going to acknowledge when we don't. We're going to ask for forgiveness when we misrepresent him. We're going to ask for forgiveness when we hurt people because God doesn't hurt people. God rescues people. And sometimes we as Christians hurt people. And we don't live as Jesus wants us to live. And we don't deny ourself, our own way of choosing to live. And we receive in our following after our own lusts and our own wisdom, the due course of the penalty of our error. Now watch, remember what I said? God doesn't want you to deny your desires. He wants to inform them with wisdom. And so James wrote this book. If you've hung around uh, to, to help those of us who say they know God and love Jesus, to be conformed into his image, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we might prove out evidence with our life the good way so that people would bump into us and say to us, hey, dude, how come you love that way? How come you don't just follow the desires of your flesh like every other 20-year-old I know? How come you don't think happiness is being a millionaire by the time that you're 30? How come you forgive people that hurt you? How come you don't objectify women? How come you're not a slave to youthful lusts? And then we can tell them. 
Well, it's not because I'm smarter than you or better than you, but I've come to know the goodness of God. And when you see the goodness of God, you begin to run towards his way and you don't live with an evil spirit. You now are informed by a Holy Spirit and you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit and you don't just follow your flesh. You inform your flesh with wisdom. But my flesh still loves nasty things because my flesh isn't dead. But spiritually, I'm alive. And so I don't live the way I used to live because I don't think the way I used to think. Now watch this. If you've been hanging around the porch for very long or watermark where we all hang out, you know that one of our favorite questions to ask people is this. As we get involved in the conversation, we start hanging out and um, running together, eventually we're gonna want to get to know one another and so we'll sometimes ask this question, do you have a faith? Because we wanna hear kind of what you believe in. We all believe in something, every single one of us um, has a worldview. A worldview, it's a big term. A worldview is just a lens through which you see reality. It's how you file truth and um, how you perceive the world. That's why Jesus at one point was talking to people and he says, if the eye is dim, how great will the darkness be inside of you? In other words, if you don't see reality for what it is, if you don't see this as God's world, that God is sovereign over and that God's going to judge one day, then you're going to see things out of focus and it's gonna hurt you. And you're gonna follow others that don't see clearly and you're gonna be blind being led by the blind. And so I want you to see. And so God gives us his word, which he calls a revelation, which means he's gonna show you something you otherwise couldn't know. And it's his kindness working in the life of men. Now watch this. When we say to people, what's your faith? How do you see the world? That's a really great question that gets a conversation going. But here's another question I've been asking people a lot lately, and that is this, and I'm asking it to you, and it sets us up for why we're looking at the book of James. Here's the question. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever met a faithful Christian? Have you ever met somebody that you look at them and say, if there is a God and he does save men and he does um, set them on the path of life and he does not leave them to their own understanding, but in all their ways they are beginning to direct it, have you ever seen somebody, you look at their life and go, there's a love there, there's a goodness there, there's a peace there, there's a joy there, there's an ability to overcome anxiety and lust there. There's a power, frankly, in their life that you are drawn to, that you demand them to make an offense and to give an account for the hope that is within them. And what I've found again and again and again is most people that don't love God and most people that don't want anything to do with Christ have never met a faithful Christian. Enter the book of James. James is writing to us so that we would know what it means to truly know Jesus. Now this is really important. James isn't telling us what we must do so Jesus loves us. James is telling us that when we know that God is good and he is love and he's not here to rip us off and to keep us from fun but to lead us to life, then this is how we live. There's a, um, a lot of different ways to say it, but one of the ways that I like to say it is we are always saved. We're brought back into a relationship with God, not by anything that we do, but because of what God has done. And those of us that know living according to our own will and way aren't prospering we cry out to God for help. We say, mercy, I am sick and tired of being sick and tired. I don't want anxiety to ruin me. I've tried to find meaning in men. 
I've tried to find life in women. I've tried to find uh, purpose in education and success. And here's the thing, man, so many people, they don't, they don't realize that while they're climbing the ladder of success, that it's leaning against the wrong wall until they're my age. And then they're angry and they're bitter. And they're not just anxious that they're not gonna have the things that they think they need. They realize they got things that don't provide for them what they wanted. And that is why this is a book, not for old men who are about to die and old women who are about to die and meet judgment. This is a book that you wanna dive into right now. Because God is too good to wait until your last gasp of breath to say, I wanna know you. When Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly, he's not just talking about a, um, a quantity of life. He wants you to have a quality of life right now. And I'm going to say it again. Some of you guys that are not devoted to Jesus, I'm going to tell you the reason you're not is you probably have never seen somebody and up close and personal watched a person live a faithful life who knows Jesus. Because when you run into that, you'll start to go, man, I'll be. I may not be convinced yet, but I'll tell you something. There is something there that I wish I had. There's a peace, there's a power, there's a hope, there's a freedom that I gotta get more of. Have you ever met a faithful Christian? Have you met somebody who applies the book of James to their life? So we have a, we're not, um, we're saved by grace. It's a gift from God. It's not according to anything that we have done. So we're saved by grace through faith alone, the Bible says. But watch this, the faith which saves is never alone. It's always accompanied by acting on their belief. I like to tell people, people say what they think, but they do what they believe, right? They say, hey, I really think that, um, you know, going to the gym and working out, it'd be good for me. So I think I'll pay, you know, 30 bucks a month to life, uh, you know, uh, the, the fitness center over there. But I believe I don't need to go because I ain't gone. I'm just sending the money every month, right? So people say what they think, but they do what they really believe. And what James wants us to do is to be people who act on our belief. And he has the courage to say, I got, I got a little concern for you. Some of y'all say you love God. Some of you say you love Jesus, but you're still living like you love yourself. And that's a problem. It's a problem because you're probably not who you think you are. And it's a problem because other people are not going to think of God what they should because you're in the way. And so he writes this section that we're about to study. Let's just uh, take a look. We're going to really look at verses 19 down to the end of the first chapter of, of this book. And so what you need to know is that when James wrote this, he didn't write it in verses and chapters. That was labels that we put on it almost 1,500 years after James wrote this. There was a guy that was a French printer who wanted to sell his Bible that he was making, and he thought he could sell it better if he could give some new gimmick to it. And so he, Robert Stephanus, sticks in his Greek New Testament chapters and verses. So they're not inspired. James didn't, you know, he wrote a letter just like you, Dear Earl, Right? He didn't say verse one, dear Earl. He just kind of started writing. And when he was done writing, he said goodbye. 
But watch this. Verse 19. This is a little phrase right here. It says, this you know, my beloved brethren. And there's a period there. Now, I think where Robert Stephanus put that 19 is a little bit unfortunate. It probably should have gone after the period. Why? Because when he says, this you know, brethren, he's talking about everything he just said, and he's reminding them that they ought to live according to it. And so let me just explain what he assumes that you know. And that is that you're not God. And that when you live like you are, it doesn't go well with you. And God isn't jacking with you when you experience temptation. What God is doing is he is reminding you that there is a liar in this world that just misrepresents who he is, and many of us have followed this liar. And so this is what it means to be converted. The Bible uses the word repentance, and that word repentance is not so much a change of action, it's a change of mind. And when you change your mind about who God is, it changes how you live. So, for instance, if you think God is like Al Capone, and he's just a mob boss, and if you don't pay tribute to him, he's gonna blow up your bakery. You might tithe. You might go to church on Christmas and Easter. You might try not to cuss in the presence of a pastor. You might go to the porch. You might even buy you know, um, some Christian book and put it there by your bed. And you just try not to tick him off. You don't really love him. You just don't want him to blow up your life. And you really don't want him to, to, you don't want to hang with him. You got to manage him like an awkward uncle. You're kind of embarrassed about him. You know, you don't tell your friends you know him. And when he's at the party, you kind of move away from him. And you don't want him to, folks to know that you're associated with him. Anybody that treats God like that, that just wants to hang out with him for an hour a week, doesn't know God. If God is slow to anger, and if he's abounding in loving kindness, and if in his presence is fullness of joy, and in his right hand are pleasures forever, if it's true of God that no good thing does he withhold from those who love him, if it's true that God doesn't want to squelch your desires, he just wants to inform them with wisdom, then you're going to be like, give me more of God. Give me more of him. Let him have my sex life. Let him have my tomorrow. Let him have my right now. If you're not thinking that way about God, it's because you're buying a lie. Now, what we just looked at the last time we were here, you know, in verses, I think last week was 12 down through verse 18, is it talked about the fact that we should never say that God is jacking with us when he tempts us. You want to write something down? Here's what I would tell you is a summary of what we looked at last week in case you missed it. And that's that God tests our faith. And he tests our faith because he wants us, he wants to lead us to life. And he every now and then gives us choices to make. And if we make choices that are contrary to him, he lets us experience the consequence of our choices, not because he's a, 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 a jerk, but because he loves us enough so that we can learn to hate our choices. Can I just say this to you? That pain in your soul is a gift from God. That pain when you're a kid and you touch a candle and it burns you is a gift from God. Because if you don't learn that fire is not something you wanna roast your 
fingers in, you're going to step your whole body into a fire, and it's going to cause real problems in your life. Do you know, um, you, you guys have all heard of the disease leprosy, right? Do you know what leprosy is? Leprosy is um, not so much a disease that eats your flesh. What leprosy is, it's called the bacillus um, bacteria. And what it does is it kills your nerve endings. And when you kill your nerve endings, you stop worrying about blisters and sores on certain parts of your body. And so you don't pay attention to it. And you don't, cleanse, you don't clean it. You, you, you know, when we're, when we're sweeping a floor, we don't know it, but we're constantly adjusting that broom in our hands a, a, a thousand little times so it doesn't just, you know, wear a, a little rut into our hand. And in fact, you know, we do it just enough at just the right rate that eventually we'll get some calluses and that'll help us. But a leper will never adjust it. And they'll look down and go, Dagnum, I'm bleeding. But it doesn't hurt. And they'll just go right back to it. And then it gets infected. And they might be embarrassed by the pus and the blood, but they'll just wrap it up. But because it doesn't bother them, they'll just let it be. When you're dead to pain, that's when you're in real trouble. And one of the things that happens, what Satan does is because he's a liar and he wants you to know that you're still in control, even though what you did isn't working, is he says, hey, I'll tell you what, why don't you use some pharmacy? Why don't you use some plant derivatives, which by the way, are gifts from God. Do you know that drugs are a gift from God? And God doesn't tell us in the Bible to never use drugs. It tells us that all things are sanctified by the word of God and prayer. He doesn't say you shouldn't use drugs. He says, I want you to use drugs in a way that are accompanied with wisdom. So, anybody here ever had their wisdom teeth pulled out? Well, then doctors probably gave you some drugs administered carefully so that you wouldn't experience unnecessary pain so they could remove some wisdom teeth that were going to cause you some problems. What Satan does is he will tell you to use these things in ways that aren't wise, like this. You're not living with wisdom. You're cutting your teeth on experience and you're have all kinds of aches and pains in your life. And he says, well, why don't you just drink yourself to a place of peace? Why don't you start numbing yourself with an altered reality? Because your reality that you're living in rebellion against God ain't working. So why don't you numb your pain? See what he does? He keeps leading you down roads and you go, oh, this is working. And that always works until what? It makes your life worse and worse and worse until you say, you know what, I don't even want to live. And he goes, well, you're still in control because why don't you just take your life? And the reason he wants to take your life is because he hates you and he hates God and he knows God loves you and he knows that when you take your life, it's appointed for men to come uh, to die once and after this comes judgment. And so he's trying to close the deal because he hates you. So what James is saying to Christians is, you know God doesn't hate you. He loves you. So don't say that God tests you in order, I mean, tempts you. God doesn't tempt anybody, but God tests you to prove out your faith, to lead you to life. Here's the thing. The enemy tempts you not to, not to um, prove your faith, but the enemy tempts you to provoke your flesh. That's James chapter 1, 12 through 18. And then... 
really, he sums it up in verse 18 by saying, in the exercise of his will, meaning God and his kindness, he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. He kept showing us the pain of our own experience and he showed us the word of life, which brought us back into relationship with him so that we'd be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. In other words, that God would allow us to come to know who he is so we could begin to live as people who know that God is good and run towards him and we, we, we care for others. We're a light in the darkness so that other people can go, where are you getting this information that is changing the way that you live? I want to know your God. And so that's all he's saying right there. And so he says, this you know, my beloved brethren. He's kind of summarizing everything that was there, but watch what happens. But new idea. Everyone must be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger. What is going on right here? Now, this is a verse that is so misused because we usually use this verse in marital counseling and we use this in um, navigating people through relationships. And when the Bible says you should be slow to speak but quick to listen, we, we almost always are talking about, look, the reason your relationships aren't working is because you just talk too much, right? And you don't listen to anybody. And you're like the fool that isn't delighted in understanding, but he only reveals his own mind. And look, it, it is true that you're going to not have a very successful string of relationships if all you do is blah, 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 but everybody, right? You know, talking about me, talking about my, talking about, you know, the Toby Keith song. <laughs> that just doesn't work. But this is not what this verse is talking about. What's the context? The context is I've got trouble in my life and I got trials and if God was good, I wouldn't have troubles and I would have trials. My flesh is still tempted and if God was good, he wouldn't tempt me. And so God, what are you doing? And what James is saying in this text right here is careful. Before you start telling God Everything that he's doing is wrong. Why don't you remind yourself who God is and who you are not? He is infinite, you are finite. He is eternal, you are temporal. He is omniscient, you got a D in calculus. So stop telling God what he doesn't know. Now, can I just encourage you with this? God is okay with you expressing yourself to him. It is okay to say to God, what are you doing? I am grieved to the point of death. My soul is ripped. My life is ruined. What are you doing? It's okay to say that to God. But listen, what you don't want to do is rant against God, right? I sometimes have had people in my life come up to me and do this. They go, Wagner, what is this? What kind of work is this? What were you thinking? What are you doing? We can't have this. I mean, somebody explain this to me. And then they walk away. All right, now, I, like, I might have deserved that. But what I realized is they weren't really there to have a conversation with me. They were there to just say in a sentence, you're an idiot, and I don't know why I'm paying you. But they really didn't want a conversation. And they wanted to terminate a relationship with me. And so when you go to God and you say, God, if there's any other way or if there's um, some other possible way for this to work out, oh, man, God, change it. And I'm not happy and my heart is torn. But I'm not God and you are, so speak to me. 
Teach me. Let me sit underneath your word where you explain things to me. Let me get around wise men and women who will help me and will guide me and tenderly lead my heart. Was Jesus tested? You bet. Was Jesus tempted? You bet. Did Jesus say, God, if there's any other way you can pull this thing off, let's pull it off another way. Did Jesus feel such a burden underneath that testing and that temptation that literally he physically emitted blood through his pores? Oh, you bet he did. But at the end of the day, what Jesus did is said, you know what? As the incarnate son of God, who's fully God, but denies his own ability to be God except as a man to trust in who God is, not my will, but your will be done. Now, Jesus never had to say, Lord, let me repent and turn from my sin. What Jesus said is, God, if there's any other way to pull this off, let's do it another way. But he, at the end of the day, said, God, you're good. And I trust you. This is um, what the scripture says to us. This is in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. This, this is a parallel. And James, just so you know, what James does is he just rips off other wise people. He rips off his brother Jesus, mostly. His whole book is just a synopsis, honestly, of the Sermon on the Mount. There's another wise guy that lived, his name was Solomon, and this is it. Solomon says this, guard your steps as you go near to the house of God. And when you go near to the house of God, which is, you know, for us anywhere, draw near to listen rather than to offer a sacrifice to manipulate and control God. Don't offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that when they try and manipulate and obligate God, they're doing evil. Because God can't be manipulated. And he's never obligated to anybody. Watch this. Don't be hasty in word or impulsive in thought in bringing up a matter in the presence of the Lord. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. James is saying, look, you do know he's God. You do know that you mess up your life. So now that you've turned to him and repented of living life on your own, and you know that God is good, so let me just, you know, we we love to say this, right? So last Friday um, was Good Friday. If you're watching back on uh, this little James series, Months in the Future, this is the Tuesday after Easter weekend. And there was a Friday that was called Good Friday. What do you mean Good Friday? It was the Friday that the most perfect man who ever lived, who was full of grace and truth, who brought healing and grace into the world and was here to call men of darkness into his marvelous light, was betrayed by those that he created, was nailed to a cross and was called a demon. And we call that Good Friday? It's the most awful act in the history of the world. But because Good Friday was God's way of paying an infinite debt against his infinite holiness through his own infinite son that he gave in his infinite love and he gave evidence that Jesus paid the debt of sin, which is death. Since the debt was paid, the wage is gone and Christ was risen to newness of life. And so if the most evil act in history turns out to be the act that was done for our greatest good, Can't we trust God in all things? That's Paul's argument in the book of Romans. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, will he not also with him freely give us all things? And so it's changed your mind about God. God's not a God to be managed. He's not a guy to be um, avoided. He's not a God to be bought off. He's a God to be run to. 
He's a God to be embraced. He's a God to drink deeply from him because surely goodness and mercy is where this God is that would die on a cross for your sins. Do you see this? Now, let me just take you one other place. This is Proverbs chapter 19, verses two and three. And then we're gonna move off, off verse 19. Proverbs 19 says this in verse two. It's not good for a man to be without knowledge. What's knowledge? Here's knowledge. God is good. God is kind. God is gracious. God isn't here to rip you off. He's here to set you free. He's not just here to give you quantity of life. He has come that you might have a quality of life, even in a broken world, marred by sin. He's came to give you truth so you wouldn't be bound by lies. It's not good for a person to be without knowledge. He who errs, I love that, or hurries with his footsteps, errs. Now, what do you think most of us do when we make bad decision after bad decision and pain comes into our life? Well, verse 3 tells us. This is a couplet. The foolishness of man ruins his way. And then his heart rages against the Lord. Ever been there? God, how could you let this happen to me? Why, why one time and I'm pregnant? And God's like, I didn't want that to happen to you. I tried to inform your desires with wisdom, not let you be a slave to them. I tried to make you secure so you wouldn't be seduced. I told you how to use pharmacia. I told you how to use drugs so that you wouldn't be drunk and loose and, and, and degraded in your thinking and go home with somebody who whispered things into your ears and told you he'd make you feel special the rest of your life. I told you not to do that because I love you and I don't hate you now. I just hate that you're living in the consequence of your choices and someone's gonna lie to you and tell you that you're still in control and you can do this with your choice. But that's not a choice, it's a child and I love you. So let's not make another bad decision. Will you trust me? And a lot of times we'll go, after I take care of this my way. And all of a sudden you become unpregnant, but then you realize every year on that date, the rest of your month, that while you became unpregnant, you never became an unmother, and you know exactly what you did. And so you are filled with anger and hate and rage, and you numb yourself with medication and you are despairing and depressed and you have people give you diagnosis and you tell all these stories but not the real story and God's not mad at you but he wants to call you out and he wants to give you real healing and real forgiveness and real restoration. Do you see what's going on here? He's trying to rescue you. And so when you've got trouble in your life, before you start running your mouth about what God did wrong, just know this, some of you didn't do anything wrong in terms of your own decisions. You were just victims of sins in this world. And God said, don't be surprised at what this world does to you because this world is filled with people who don't walk with me. So don't get angry and join them. Hate sin and follow me. This is why in James chapter one, verse five, he said this, does any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all people without reproach and it'll be given to you. So it's okay to ask, God, why is there evil? I'm glad you asked, because people think they can find good without me. God, why haven't you stopped evil yet? Because I love people and I'm gonna rescue them from eternal judgment. God, this doesn't make sense to me. It shouldn't make sense to you because you're finite and I'm infinite, but you just believe me. Look at the way I've worked with people through history. 
So James is telling people who know him, careful before you tell God he doesn't know what he's doing. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Your anger against God is not going to lead you to more righteousness. The enemy is going to play on your anger at God that you don't like the way you look. God says you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And you can either say, "Uh uh-uh. Or, well, God, I'm not sure I'd have made myself this way. But I know you're good. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put aside all filthiness of speech and of action and all that remains of wickedness, which is rebellion against God, which is the way we all used to live before we knew that God was good. In humility, meekness, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Do you see why God's word is here? This is not some um, chain tied to a choke collar that he's just snapping it. This is a book of freedom. Now look, you're free to make whatever choice you want, but you're not free to choose your consequences. And God says, do you want to know how to save your souls from anger and pain and despair and anxiety? Quit acting like you're God, like you got it all figured out. Trust me, I'm good. Trust me, I have words that lead to life. If you want to go get more of what you're getting, go get more of what you're getting, and I'll be right here waiting for you. But you need to know, man, while I offer forgiveness to your repentance, I don't promise tomorrow to your procrastination. Today is the day of salvation. Why get more scars before you come to my Savior? Watch. This is tender stuff. Sometimes we love to be funny, right? And sometimes we're just going, look, have you met a Christian who doesn't ever get angry at God, who has this peace that passes understanding, who has a peace not as the world gives, but a different kind of peace? Do you find, do you see some people that have an inner beauty that you just go, what, where is that security and that strength coming from? James wants more and more of those Christians to exist. So if you're here as a guest, and I hope you run into some of them here, some of them hang out here. Some of them are just beginning to learn that God might be good. And we're glad you're here. Watch this. And so James says this, prove yourselves. In other words, let your life become what God wants your life to become, not so that he can save you, but prove that you love God by living like somebody that's been saved by the ways that seem right to men. And start to live like you know the goodness of God, that he's not here to make you deny your desires, but to live in a way that your desires are informed by wisdom. Prove that you know that God is good. Seek him. Love him. Run with him, yield to him, hope in him. Don't be just hearers who delude themselves. Who sings like, my God is greater, my God is stronger, right? And then you go right out there and go, I am God, I'll do what I want to. (laughs) Don't just have a Bible by your bed. Don't just read your Bible. Apply your Bible. Jesus says, you know the 20-year-old whose house is going to stand? It's not somebody who hears the word of God. It's not somebody who goes to the porch. It's somebody who lets that word of God be implanted in their soul. So let's take a look at this. He says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, verse 23, he's like a man. Uh Uh-oh. Now look, in Greek, there's two words for man. There's actually more, but the two primary ones is one that you're going to probably know, right? So you go shopping at anthropology. 
The Greek word for humankind is anthropos or anthropos, okay? So anthropology is a store for humans. You don't go buy dog sweaters there. I don't know, do they sell dog sweaters in anthropology? All right, that's a dog apology. I don't know where that is. But, but anthropology is a store for humans, right? So this is not the word anthropos. This is the word aner. If you go look up A-N-E-R, actually in your Merriam-Webster dictionary, you will find out that it refers in English to a male insect, typically a male ant. But in Greek, it's just the word male, man or husband. Now, this is interesting. We're going to have a little fun here because it's time to have a little fun. Verse 23, it says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a male who looks at his natural face in a mirror. Okay? Now, there's a reason he didn't say it's like all of humankind. Because God made us male and female. And the way a woman looks at the mirror and the way a man looks at the mirror are very different. All right, guys wake up, they burp, they scratch themselves, they go, right? And then they just go, all right, I'm street legal, you know, and they walk out the front door. Women have these things. It's a tackle box. Because they're fixing to go fishing. I didn't know these existed until I married a non-aner. And uh, I'm like, what's that? Right? And they open it up. And this is a box full of wonder. This is foundation and blush. And this is um, lip gloss and rouge. And this is setting spray and face powder. And this is mascara and eyeshadow. This is a lip liner pencil. And this is lipstick. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And then there's tools, there's blow dryers and curling irons, flattening sticks. And I'm like, we gotta get a garage just for this crap. All right, when a girl goes to the mirror, she is there to go to work. And, and she's like, I don't like what I'm seeing and we're gonna stay here till I like it. That's what James is saying. Don't be like Adam, who burps, scratches himself, looks at the mirror, sees it's disgusting, and then goes away and doesn't care that he lives a disgusting life. Get in front of that thing, the mirror of God's word, and go, this is light, and this is righteousness, and this is goodness, and deal with it. And you conform yourself, not with makeup. This is where the illustration now falls. And by the way, boys, let me just tell you something. I married a good woman. She doesn't have, well, I'm, you know, just to just let you know, man, I can remember on my honeymoon, we played all day long on a beach in Kauai, and we hung out, somebody had bought us a gift certificate at this amazing restaurant we could never afford. And so we played all day on the beach and we walked into that restaurant and my wife had a plastic bag and she walked into the girls' restaurant for like six minutes. And she came out and I was like, oh my goodness, this is very good, right? <laughs> like. I'm like, there, it wasn't like, you know, man, that she had to get like six layers of something on and completely change who she looked. 
right? And there's just a beauty about that. So, I mean, you know, do what you want with makeup, but I'm just telling you, man, you know, um, what a gift to find a woman. You know who the most attractive women are? I'm just going to tell you this. You know who the most attractive women are? It's women who are comfortable with who they are. Do you want to know who? You want to know? I'll just tell you this. Here's a little secret. You know who the best girls, the, the women that are best in physical intimacy are the women that are comfortable with their bodies. And I pray you never learn that until you marry one. <laughs> because they're not hiding. They're not looking for the dark. They're like, this is mine and God gave it to me and I've given myself to you. Let's enjoy it. There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no falsies. There's no nothing except reckless wisdom-informed desire. Amen. All right? So, don't be somebody that looks in a mirror and goes, I don't care what I see. The mirror of God's word is there to help you see. Hey, look, man, this thing, this, this pain, this disgusting, this not rightness, deal with it. That's verse 23. Verse 24, okay, basically it finishes that analogy. Verse 25, but watch, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, watch this. What's, what's, what's this called? The law of liberty. See, if you still think this is a rule book that's here to put you in a cage, you don't know God. This, this is going to lead you to life and peace. I, I'm old enough now, okay? My 20-something friends that mocked me when by the grace of God I discovered who he was right about your age. My 20-something friends who said, bro, no, man, we're going to go live the high life on Lower Greenville. We're going to go down to Deep Bellum. We're going to go to Cancun. We're going we're to get married and then not be faithful to our wives. They're now on their second and their third marriages. Some of them go, hey, I'm going to make all kinds of money. I'm going to make enough money that I can uh, buy my kids whatever they want. And they bought their kids whatever they want, but they didn't buy them a present-focused, loving father. And those friends are starting to call me. They go, Wagner, we've been watching you online. I know we haven't talked in 30 years, but can I talk to you? Because I followed the law that led to death. And I see something. Can I just show you? This was me Easter morning, Easter afternoon, man. I got six kids. Three of them are married to godly spouses. I got six grandchildren. I've got a wife who loves me, who doesn't spend 200 bucks a month to have her hair colored. And she is fine. <laughs> and I, I have a family that loves to be together. And we're not perfect, man. We sometimes hurt each other's feelings. But you know what we do? We repent. We seek and ask each other's forgiveness. We reconcile conflict the way God told us to. And I am rich. I'm rich because the law of liberty has been given to me by a loving father. And I'm just standing here and I'm not selling. I'm just inviting you in. So that when you're 50, you don't have to call some guy who's been living according to the life of liberty and say, how'd you do it? I'm going to tell you how I did it. I believe that God was good, and I didn't just delude myself, but I proved out the good and acceptable way of God. And I'm just saying, come and see. It's good. 
And that's why I love to talk to you guys because this is one of my favorite crowds to talk to because you're so lied to. And also because you, are, you guys can be leveraged for the greatest good or the greatest evil right now. And I am pleading with you to love the law of liberty. We're not going to like you more if you do. I just think you're going to love your life a whole lot more. And so verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious yet doesn't bridle his tongue. Now watch this. This doesn't just mean you don't drop F-bombs. Think of the context. Life is hard, man. Sometimes it's tough. And bridle your tongue before you say God doesn't know what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's doing, that you're 32 and still single. It's okay. Don't seek a spouse. Seek the Lord. That's where life is. And if you seek the Lord, then you're bound probably if you do meet somebody to meet somebody who's also seeking the Lord. And then if you decide to get married, you guys will enjoy the law of liberty together. So he's just saying, watch your tongue. Don't deceive your heart that you know better than God. The person who does that, their religion is worthless. All that's saying, again, understand the context. The context is not here if you tell coarse jokes. If you say bad words, your religion is worthless. That is so petty. Listen, you shouldn't speak in a way that is profane. But the profaneness here is people who say, my God is greater, my God is higher, right? Whatever the right song is, right? How great is our God. And then we go out there and we live just like the rest of the world who's confused about the goodness of God. That, what kind of religion is that? You want to know what pure and undefiled religion is? And so he's just going to say, I mean, your life might be hard, but there's somebody whose life is harder than you. There's widows, there's orphans. Go love somebody. Quit worrying about how bad your life is. Go find somebody whose life is worse and love them. Keep yourself unstained by the world. Do you know why he wants you to be unstained by the world? Because you're supposed to be bright and shining stars. That a dark world is trying to figure out which way light is. And they want to run. God wants them to run into you. But if you really know God, and listen, Christians can sin and we can get stuck in our sins sometimes, but James is saying, let's pop out of it. Confess your sins. Pray for one another that you might be healed. And let's go, man. Let's be Christian because there's a whole bunch of world out there that is trapped in the world. And if we say we know God but live like the world, how are they ever going to come to know God? And you're going to be bound by cords that you are set free from because you know it's a lie, but you keep living in the lie, which should make you think, do I really know the truth? And even if you know the truth, but you live in the lie, it's just a mess. God is so sick of people who go to church and who don't follow him. It's fine to get around the church. The church is a people. And I hope when you're around us, you see us not live perfectly, but live with hope. You see us confess our sin. You see us acknowledge that the world sure looks tempting sometimes, but let's remind ourselves. When we bit that lie, it always had a hook. And that temptation was there to provoke our flesh to trap us. God is here to give us a chance to stand in front of the world being tempted as they are, tested by God, but to choose good. And the world keeps saying, how do you keep doing that? And the answer is because, not because the ding-dong is any less, you know, attractive, all right? or ho-hos or uh, Swiss rolls or I don't even know what candy do you or what, what snacks do you guys eat these days, right? I don't even think they make ding-dongs anymore, right? Uh, 
right? And that's, I know, it's an awkward name to begin with. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's just like it, it, cookies are still sweet, cake still looks sweet, sex inside and outside of, outside of marriage still looks sweet. But I know it's death. And so I just like, I want to show the world there's life somewhere else because the world knows there's not life there. That's why sin never satisfies. But God does. So if you're here and you don't have liberty, God wants to set you free. If you're here and you're disgusted with um, the deception that's ruled you, God wants to offer you the truth that he loves you. And he just says, you sick and tired of being sick and tired? Come. Come. Get to know my son. He died for you. And if I'm a God that would take on the form of humanity and live a sinless life and yet die a sinner's death, all because I wanted to pay your debt, you might want to check me out when I tell you how to live. And I'm not going to love you because you live a certain way, but you're going to live a certain way if you love me. Come. Come. And if you're already one of those people that came, Let's be Christian because the world needs to see that God is good. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for James, this mirror of truth that we could hold up tonight and we could look at and we could say, oh, Father, don't let us be deluded. Don't let us just come and do little spiritual things and play religious games. Let us be righteous men and women. Let us live by faith. Let us be individuals who know that you're good. Let us build our life on your word. If there is somebody who is here who doesn't know the word of grace, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, I pray that right now they would just say, Lord, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I hate sin and the deceiver, and I want to be set free. Oh, God, is it possible that you could love me? I take by faith that you did. And I come to you and confess my sin. And I believe that Jesus died on my cross for my sin. And I believe you raised him from the dead as evidence that my debt had been paid. And so now, make me among those who are the first fruits of your salvation. And let me walk now in the goodness of my new reality that you're not here to steal from me. You are here to give me unbegrudgingly wisdom so that I may walk in a way that makes others demand to know what family I am from. And may I tell them, it is the family of grace, the family of Jesus Christ, the church. Lord, build our life on that. In Jesus' name.